0: I didn't need a doctor to tell me I was never going to walk again. I mean, I did the math right there on the ground. That's what Jessica of said when thinking back to a moment most of us can't even imagine. And she is today's guest for this episode of Mental Health for Performance. Hi, I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop, and I have her incredible story to share with you right now. Now, Jessica is so much more than just someone who overcame a life-changing accident. She's a Paralympian in the sport of wheelchair basketball, a 2014 World Champion, a 2010 World Championship bronze medalist, two-time Canadian champion, and a two-time Pan Am Games silver medalist too. She is also a lawyer. Yes, in the midst of everything else, she studied hard. And when many told her she couldn't or shouldn't, she did. She has contributed so much to her community, and now we are thrilled to be able to expand the community to include you. And a huge thanks to Pinnacle for bringing this episode of Mental Health for Performance to us all. Pinnacle, your recruitment firm that has been proudly on the job for the past 20 years. Now, on to the inspiring story of Jessica Fliegenhart, Paralympian, lawyer, wife, and mother, and here's where it all began.
1: Oh, goodness. Well, the life story begins where I'm actually sitting today, which uh, kind of tickles me still. I was born and raised in Kamloops, B.C., and uh, that is where I live today. I came back to my hometown after um, traveling and living all over the world. Yeah, 1983, Kamloops, B.C. is where I was born and grew up. I did my school here. um, And then much like we were chatting before we start, we press play was uh, I graduated high school got on a bus and thought I'm never coming back here. <laughs> Moved out right away. <laughs>
0: yeah. and, and where were you headed?
1: I, I started uh, my university career in Calgary. I spent a few years there. Um, and then I took a year off, went traveling. And uh, it was actually shortly after I came back from that year off traveling that I was injured in a workplace accident. Uh, and I had a sustained a spinal cord injury. So I broke my back. And from that day on in 2004, I've used a wheelchair full time. What was what was the moment? Well, it's interesting. So I was working uh, as a forest firefighter, which is a pretty good job. Honestly, I would still highly recommend it to many people. Um, Certainly in the interior of British Columbia, lights on fire with a pretty good regularity. Um, It's a great way to make money to, to pay for university. Um, But we were actually working on a fire in the Northwest Territories and yeah, I was involved in a a truck accident. My my crewmate lost control of the truck we were riding in and I was thrown out of the truck and we were super rural area in the middle of Wood Buffalo National Park, Northwest Territories. And um, yeah, I, I broke my back and was instantly paralyzed from about the belly button down. Wow so the accident happens
0: you wake up to the reality how soon after this happened did you know that this would be a permanent thing for you
1: i mean (laughs) my story is um you know it's interesting people are all over the spectrum with this kind of thing but for me it was instant uh i didn't i didn't lose consciousness in the accident and it's a very interesting thing to be both in excruciating pain but also not be able to feel half your body And, you know, in that moment I was sort of like, Oh, (laughs) well, okay. I'm paralyzed. And like, honest to goodness, that was, that was it. I knew, I knew immediately I come from a medical family, you know, we'd talked about things like this before I understood how the spinal cord worked. And so I was like, Oh yeah, here we go. Kind of thing. There was no, there was no, I don't know, sugar coating it. I didn't need a doctor to tell me I was never going to walk again. I mean, I did the math right there on the ground. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, some people with accidents like this, they do lose consciousness and they don't know what happened to them and they don't remember. I mean, for me, though, it, it was like a light switch, like boom, right. instant gone, ha- cannot feel a thing and what I can feel like unbelievably painful, the most painful experience of my life. Um, and uh, it, it was pretty clear. It was pretty clear in that moment. Wow. So yeah. were you in the hospital for a long time? And uh, yeah, I was hospitalized for a long time. I was pretty banged up in that accident, came close to dying a couple times because of other complications. So um, I was an inpatient in hospital for about four months, um, first in Edmonton, and then I was flown to Vancouver. And then from uh, the inpatient, like Vancouver General Hospital, you go to a place called GF Strong, mm-hmm. um, which is a big rehabilitation hospital. And I was there for another, geez, I want to say six months in, in that rehab hospital setting. So, oh yeah, it was, it was a solid 10-ish months, I think, before I came home.
0: Yeah. So in that 10 months, I mean, you were recovering was obviously were your parents right there? Like what, what was the process and what were you in the hospital for that long doing? Was it rehab? Obviously, I guess some of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, like I said, I was pretty banged up initially. So tons of complications. I broke all my ribs as well. Um, And yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I wasn't well enough to go to rehab for about three, four months. And then in rehab, it was simply learning how to live again. You literally have to relearn how to do everything, you know, get out of bed in the morning, get, get dressed, you know, move a wheelchair. It's, um, it's incredibly fatiguing. Um, my mom was there as much as she possibly could be, but we live, you know, four hours north of Vancouver, so she was there, you know, as much as she could be. But she was still working; she's a nurse, or was a nurse at the time. My brother was there a ton; he was in university uh, at the time. I had a couple friends who just decided that they were going to be there, and they were there all the time. Also, also at university in Vancouver, uh, and and so that really worked out. I mean, it's fascinating. I think about it now. You know, this was. I was sort of before the internet, right? It was 2004. So yes, the internet existed, but none of us had smartphones. And I didn't have a cell phone at the time. Like you you nobody texted each other in 2004. Yeah. Um there was no such thing as FaceTime or video chat. So like I was quite literally just sort of alone a lot in the hospital. It was really it was an interesting uh experience.
0: So how old were you when you got out of the hospital and and you were expected to sort of continue on with your life as it was? 21. 21. Yeah.
1: When you left the hospital, what were your thoughts? What were your plans? Uh, what was your mindset? My plans were get back to university as soon as possible, like immediately. <laughs> yeah. I was dying. <laughs> <laughs> I was so frustrated. Oh boy, the most intense frustration you can possibly imagine was I was so frustrated at how slow everything was I was so frustrated that my life had been derailed um I I mean I talk a big game like I knew I was paralyzed I didn't actually know what that meant like let's be clear I was like cool I'll just use a wheelchair I'll go about my life I had no idea about secondary complications and um accessibility issues I blithely thought Rick Hansen went around the world in whatever 1984. We had a picture of him in my high school. I was like, "Cool, he's fixed this. I'll be fine." Um, I didn't, I didn't realize that accessibility was a massive issue. So I came out, I came out of the hospital being like, "Get me back. Get me back to school." I have moved away from Camlins. I do not want to be here. I had to move back in with my mom, which was like, "Oh, I hate this." <laughs> so I was, I was chomping at the bit to go. Um, Physically, I was in no way ready, Um, was not well, was still dealing with unbearable pain issues. Um, But I was just mentally withering, Mm -hmm. (laughs) really, really, really wanting to go. I used to, I used to, my motto for many years was channel the rage. (laughs) I was just so frustrated. Channel
0: the rage. You know, I think too, I, I think when, when we haven't experienced something like that, we don't know, we just can't imagine what's on that inside and, and how strong those feelings must have been. So did you then, did you, were you able, I mean, you said even, you said physically, I wasn't I wasn't really ready to,
1: to go, but did you go? I did. Um, I, I was discharged in February, which yeah. is a terrible time to come to Kamloops. I love Kamloops it's a night, it's not great in February. Like there's nothing really great about camlets in February, March. It was just so like muddy and snowy, which are challenges and using when you use a wheelchair. Like I mentioned, my, my, my pain control was, was terrible. I ended up having a a second major surgery, uh, like a year to the day of my accident. I had the rods in my back removed. They were causing me a tremendous amount of pain. Um, and like, I had to go back to Vancouver for that big surgery. I think I was in hospital for another week or 10 days. And then I was home for maybe two, three weeks. And I was like, no, I'm moving. I'm moving. I'm going back to school. And I was back at university um, like 13 months after the accident at Simon Fraser in Vancouver. I just did it again in in no way physically ready to do it. But I did. Honestly, it was that or my mental health. Right. And, um, I had to make the call.
0: I had to make the call. What, what was your mom saying? What was, what were the people around you that loved you? Were oh, they- my mom was terrified.
1: She was terrified. I remember her telling me that she wanted me to get a giant dog. Oh yeah. Cause she was so scared that I was going, I'd never lived in Vancouver. It's not a place I'd lived before. And I was like, I don't care. I'll figure it out. Again, the brashness of youth right now, as a parent, I look back on that and be like, Oh my word. I get my mom now. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I lucked out. I found an apartment that was accessible by a stroke of luck. I don't even remember how this happened, but we bumped into a dear childhood friend of mine that I'd kind of lost touch with before I moved to Vancouver and we found out that, and I say we, because I'm fairly certain my mom like propositioned her. I think my mom walked up to this friend of mine and was like, oh, you're moving to the lower mainland as well. You need to live with Jessica. <laughs> so anyways, I had this friend of mine who we'd been childhood friends with was my roommate. And and it was awesome. She was great. She was, um she was a nurse. She was m- moving to Vancouver to be an ER nurse. And which like, you know, I think my mom thought, you know, if something happened to me, my friend could care for me. Nothing ever did. Um, But yeah, I moved, I moved back and oh boy, it was, it was physically very demanding. I used to sleep in between classes in my car because I was so exhausted. I could make it like 70 minutes, 80 minutes of like sitting in my chair. And then I had to go somewhere and lay down and literally fall asleep because I was just so exhausted.
0: We haven't even gotten into the law school yet. (laughs) which is challenging for someone who's had no difficulties in life it's challenging a to be in it or to get into it Mm -hmm. so you finished your undergraduate degree and you're dealing with pain you're dealing with the challenge of this um Mm -hmm. do you remember like days where you were like i can't do this anymore and what got you through
1: i don't think there was ever a day where i thought i can't do this anymore with university necessarily because with university you can probably the master of your own domain right you know you have You can go to class, you can take a break, I could structure it. Yeah. Um, So no, I never had a thought like that. Maybe more in law school. Uh, Actually, no, that's true, I did have that. I did have that thought in law school. And uh, I went to law school at the University of Victoria and I started in 2008. So I was like four years out from my spinal cord injury, just a baby still, still learning tons about myself. Uh, my body at that point, like things were fairly stable, but not like stable, stable. Right. And I did. I actually tried to quit law school <laughs> in my first year. Uh, it was just, it was really challenging. I didn't, I didn't feel like I fit. Uh, again, pain, pain was a huge part of it. I was really struggling with pain control. Oh, man. In those days, a lot of stuff was inaccessible. And like you're like, so I was like actively excluded from, things that make law school bearable. And that was sort of hard to deal with. And, and at that time, I th- I'm sure UVic still has this, the university of Victoria, they had a, uh, the law school had this lady who I think her position was something like cultural advisor. Um, and I remember her like swooping down one day and she would wear these like long flowing robes. And she took me into her office because I think she'd caught wind that I, I was going to quit. I was going to quit at Christmas. And no, she took me aside and, and made me, well, not made me, but asked me if I would consider staying to the end of the year, um, because, you know, I was selected to go to law school for a reason, and they, you know, they needed diverse voices, and she thought I had a viewpoint that mattered and stuff. And so, I, I don't know, somehow at the end of this, this intervention, I agreed to stay till the end of the year, and um, it, it, it settled down, we'll put it that way my issues settled down.
0: Wow. So obviously this professor she had some impact at that time and, and got you to stay. Now, I, I don't know exactly how law school works, but when in law school, do you choose what field you're going to specialize in? And right now, if you work in uh, workplace harassment and bullying, as far as I've understand, is that correct?
1: Well, so I do a few things. I Primarily what I do actually is I work for other injured people. I work for a lot of people that get hurt. Um, and then I do I do some employment law as well, like workplace harassment and, and then some estate litigation. At law school, you don't actually have to choose in law school. And many people don't. It, it, it's more like, um, it's kind of more like being a doctor, actually, where you go through a fairly general medical school, law school. And then it's after you're out and you're doing either your residency or your articles that you end up potentially specializing more. And that has a lot to do with where you get your articles and, and the firm that you work for. And um, I um, I am actually shocked that I'm still in private practice. I thought I would go to law school and never work a day as an actual lawyer. I didn't have much of a plan at the time. And here I am.
0: <laughs> and here you are. Well, and you say you work <laughs> a lot with, with people who are injured. And I mean, is that what was that an obvious bend for you? Because you can
1: actually relate to them? <laughs> my goodness, you don't know the funny thing. I actively tried to avoid that. I was like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be, it's too on the nose. Absolutely not. I'm not doing that at all. And then you want to know the interesting thing was I, the firm I started working for and that I still work for today, um, they really make sure that their, their students do a little bit of everything. And so it was when I was working with the lawyer who did all of the, the critical injury work and I ended up, he had a client who had 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 a spinal cord injury. And I ended up being like a translator because the client was saying things that the lawyer wasn't hearing. And the lawyer was saying things that the client wasn't hearing. And the relationship was deteriorating quite quickly. And I remember the lawyer being so upset and, and I kind of, and like, this is, I'm like a first year associate. This, this is a partner, They're <laughs> like 30 years experience. And I remember saying to him, like, this is not about you. Like, Mm -hmm. I get that you're upset, you know, the family's upset and it's coming out at you, but it has nothing to do with you. They are expressing this to you because their entire world has been blown to pieces and everything is terrifying Mm -hmm. and you are someone that listens to them. So you are getting the worst and the scariest of their fears right now. And then also (laughs) with him trying to talk to the client, and, and, and the client not hearing what he was saying, I would go back and kind of do the same thing. And then it all became, well, I appear to be quite good at this. <laughs> so I should probably stop fighting it. And I remember a, a senior associate taking me aside and being like, why are you trying so hard to avoid this? Like, just own it. And then I did. And
0: here I am. And here you are. And of course, of course, you can relate. And of course, they would share with you. In you, I'm sure, see someone who can relate to their world being blown apart and something like this happening to you like it has happened to them. So as you as you work now and, and as you do your as you work with your clients and all of that and and you you listen to them and you work with them, does your experience make make a difference in, in do you think in how you relate to them? And does it make a difference in how you work for them? Oh, I'd say so, absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well a lot of my clients don't even know they can't verbalize what has happened to them I mean they can tell you how what what parts of their bodies have been injured and what the doctors have told them but they can't they're they're so new to the world of disability that they they haven't even begun to comprehend all the levels of changes Mm -hmm. and I can get there quickly and and in a way that is both um I think i i think i spare them a lot of the emotional labor of having to think about it too much because i already know i already know
0: i love that you spare them the emotional labor and and, and to be honest what does someone this is a legit question from someone who hasn't been injured to that level what does someone who goes through something like that what do they need a lawyer for what are all the things that you afford them and what do they need you to work through with them
1: Oh there's lots. I mean to, uh, I work for people generally who get well who get injured because somebody else has done something and there's been an accident and 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 there's usually insurance money on the line to to care for people um and and so they have to be able to explain to the insurance company why they need the money and how their lives have changed and the insurance company I mean any insurance company anywhere their main goal is to not pay money. So we have to make a case. We have to, you know, explain to the company why they need what they need and so that 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 is a fairly invasive process for anyone right it's not fun it's not fun and so I get I get to talk to them about that and you know sort of guide these people through this process and try to protect them honestly as much as possible because it's very violating and not fun Mm. wow yeah I
0: mean, are there are there extra challenges that you have faced along the way being a lawyer g- going into the courtroom in a wheelchair do you feel ever that you're treated differently that it's you're seen differently and if if you have how have you handled that and how do you
1: deal with that i mean i mean i think that happens every day in my life not just as a lawyer i mean less so now because i'm in a smaller community and, and most people know me now but sure. certainly when i started um, there's a number of actual uh, of, of groups, marginalized <laughs> groups, if you will, uh, you know, lawyers with disabilities and Indigenous lawyers um, who I think the Indigenous lawyers actually put out a, a video called But I Was Wearing a Suit, where they're often mistaken as uh, like a criminal accused when they attend the courthouse instead of the lawyer. Um, and, and certainly from my perspective, using a wheelchair, I get mistaken often, um, but it's less people are often just like, are you lost? You know, like nobody thinks that I've committed a crime. They're just like, you must be lost. Where, (laughs) what do you need? Can I help you? And I'm like, no, no, I'm I'm going up on the fifth floor where my clients are kind of thing. Um, But certainly, I mean, that happens every day in my life. And honestly, that was a large part of me going to law school. I'm, (laughs) I don't know if I should say this, but um, I was again, just so frustrated, so frustrated with, with being Um, underestimated, like in every facet of my life that I thought, you know, screw this, I'm going to go to law school. So that if somebody just says something to me, I can turn around and be like, I'm a lawyer. (laughs) That's right. You know what I can do? I don't (laughs) Wow, incredible.
0: I want you to be my lawyer if I ever need one. (laughs) You can't lose with that attitude, really. You know, hey, look what I can do and I'm going to do all I can. To do this and already having overcome so many things in your life. Uh, when you work with people in the workplace, we're, we're, we're doing this podcast to talk to people too who are, who are leaders in the workplace, who are. Um, you know, wanting to make the workplace a better, better place. I Mm -hmm. say workplace, but really it's life. We all Mm -hmm. head to a workplace of some kind. We're all on a team of some kind, and we're going to get to your, I want to get to your basketball experience as well and how this weaves into what you all know and bring to your work and to your life. But, um, people who, who are in the workplace and they're listening to your story and, Talk a little bit about your work with with those who are facing difficulties in their work and you come alongside of them because they need your help. Uh, Maybe explain to us how exactly that looks, what kind of situations do you help with, and when? what have you seen in that light?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, workplace law is a huge field. Um, it it encompasses everything. I mean, there's there's sort of the planning aspect of things, which is you know setting up employment agreement agreements and 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 that kind of thing, and you know severance packages. And then and then there's the more um, uh, acute area, shall we say? You know, the the sort of bullying and harassment claims. And oh boy, is that a growing area. I think the last couple of years have left everybody's nerves a little raw. Um, and I, I, you know, I see the harassment claims and the bullying claims increasing more and more and more. Um, I do some work with athletes uh, dealing with their national sport organizations. That's certainly a conversation that is getting louder and louder in Canada. Um, yeah, there's a ton of, of work in, in the area. And, you know, a, a lot of it is it's sort of investigations, figuring out exactly what happened and who said to what. Who said what to wear when that kind of thing yeah yeah it,
0: there are gray areas there for sure aren't there someone is absolutely labels it as i was bullied and i think people have that question often even in schools well are we just calling everything bullying now are we just calling it all harassment or wow where does that line it, i mean maybe you can't even name that one line
1: but so so there's a legal test um you know the courts have said you know the the way that we're going to look at this is would a reasonable person know or ought to have known that this would uh you know cause the the individual um you know would they be humiliated by this would it be you know interpreted really poorly that kind of thing so so there's a lot of context there right A lot of context, different workplaces have different standards. I mean, not that they should necessarily, but they do. Um, Yeah, it it can get, it can get messy. And there's a lot of feelings. There's a lot of feelings in this area of law. (laughs) Wow. What would you say to someone who's in a leadership
0: position, they hear something is happening or you know someone comes to them with something, what would your advice be? You know, do you do you go right away and get counsel or do you take it easy, do you have chats, where do you go? What's what direction would you give someone who wants to have the best workplace environment possible and inevitably things come up.
1: So I always say this, I say this in a lot of contexts, uh don't hide the body. Like all the problems happen in the movies when somebody tries to hide the body (laughs) if everybody just took a breath and said you know what we are not going to touch anything we are going to alert everybody and deal with this rather than trying to you know hide the body off in the swamp or something right Right. so when my advice is you (laughs) employers you have to take it seriously if somebody is coming to you um and i mean i think we we're learning more and more about this with organizational behavior people generally don't complain. Like the vast majority of people do not want to complain. They don't want to create a fuss. If somebody is coming to you to say there is a problem, 99% of the time, there is a problem. 99.9% of the time, there is a problem. You have to take it seriously. You have to make efforts to investigate what's going on, see what you can do to fix it, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of... So many of the problems happen when somebody reports something or makes a complaint and it's just pushed aside because, well, first off, that just destroys any trust Mm -hmm. that existed in the workplace. And then all kinds of problems happen. You know, the trust element is so, so important Mm -hmm. on so many levels, like workplace, sports, life, family, everything, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: Yeah. Well, you so seem like a person who's not afraid to have tough conversations. Jeepers, you must be having tough conversations every day.
1: Every day. Yeah. No, I I don't mind that at all. I actually said to my husband last night, we were talking about something completely, you know, unrelated. And I said, man, I hope with our kids become lawyers, if only because tough conversations is what we do. And it's a skill. It is a skill. You have to practice this. So I didn't know how to do this when I started. (laughs)
0: Well, and you've, and and obviously you've learned and you've, and then every time you put a tough conversation out there or the conversation comes to you when the client brings you something or, or whatever it might be, um, yeah. you've obviously learned from experience and we're learning from you just how successful you've been in saying, listen, don't hide it. Let's talk about it. Let's yeah. talk about how sport has woven into your life before your accident were you an athlete was that something that was important to you and uh, lead us through your story that way Uh, what sports did you play and how did you get you know how did you get to wheelchair basketball
1: yeah uh yeah sports played a huge part in my life growing up i love sports i played all the sports i did all the things um kamloops is like the best place ever to grow up if you're a sporty kid I did all these things that it, that it wasn't until I moved away to university that I realized like other people don't get a chance to do. Like I come from a single parent family, but like I grew up ski racing and horseback riding and doing all these things that are like normally people associate with, you know, wealth and, and privilege. And it just happened because where we live, it was so accessible and so easy. Yeah. I played soccer and basketball and, and, and all those things. And then, I was not, I I, like, I was quite a good basketball player in high school, but not like good enough for the big schools, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And I didn't want to, I was recruited by some very small schools and I made the choice. I know I want to put my education first. So uh, in my first and second years of university, I played a ton of ultimate Frisbee. Um, I briefly played rugby, but found it terrifying. (laughs) Much to the coach's chagrin. She was so excited. She got this big basketball player with you know, it was very excited. I'm like, I can't do this. It's too stressful. <laughs> um, and then uh, the year that I took off traveling, I, I literally went backpacking around New Zealand, like, and did all the major hikes and lived in my tent and stuff like that. I was super getting into backcountry sports and things. And then the accident happened and quite literally in my, it was, it was in the summer. My accident was in August. And so the Olympics were on and I remember watching hours and hours and hours of Olympics. And then probably for one of the first times ever, the Paralympics was televised. Right. And I remember watching the women's basketball team, um, but the, the wheelchair basketball team, and being like, yeah. Yeah, all right. Okay, sure, sure. I'll just play wheelchair basketball now. And um, so very quickly got into, well, that was another reason I had to leave Camloops. At that time, there were no adapted sports, none. So like, I, I quite literally came home with nothing to do. Oh, it was a problem. So when I moved to Vancouver and very quickly got started first with wheelchair racing, I actually did not like wheelchair basketball at all. The really? first couple times I tried it. Uh, it's really rough, yeah. Like really rough. It looks rough. And, um, you know, I, again, I was still dealing with some pain and stuff. And I was like, this is a nightmare, like, much like I felt about rugby. I was like, this is very stressful and everybody's trying to hurt me. I don't want to play this game. Um, and so, uh, at that time, while well, she still lives in Vancouver, there was a very, very prominent coach and she still is Marnie Abbott-Peters who set her sights on me as a wheelchair basketball player and made no bones about it like i was very into wheelchair racing like loved it i love being out on the road like 10k's that was my thing like just being outside by myself oh it was amazing and marnie <laughs> vocally said i will get you i will get you over to wheelchair basketball it's the last thing i do and she did and she did yeah she did there was a lot of opportunity in wheelchair basketball and the road was harder With wheelchair racing. And so there were very definitely carrots dangled in front of me. And, and I mean, I'm the kind of person who like you offer me a chance to go to some big competition. I'm taking it like I desperately want to go.
0: That doesn't surprise me. So she got you, she got you to come and train. Is that, is that it? And you started to the team?
1: Yeah. So I was training um, and she said, I'll, you know, we'll get you on the women's provincial team. And I was like, Oh man, that's so awesome. I'm so excited to, you know, play with the women. And then, and then she, you know, I, I went to the Canada games with a co-ed team um, and then um, yeah, I was taken to a national, like a women's national team training camp with like no goals, nothing. I was very uh, like, whoa, there, there is a bit of a transition from from able-bodied basketball to wheelchair basketball. Um, it's very similar, but there are some very key differences. And my brain was still playing stand-up ball, as we call it. Yeah. And actually, I had like one of the assistant coaches would just sort of follow me on the sideline and, and murmur, stop playing stand-up. Stop playing stand-up because like the defensive principles are different. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, right, class. And like, <laughs> remember, like I use a wheelchair now. And, and it was at that first camp, like, again, I thought, oh man, I'm so terrible. I can't do anything. And, um, yeah, the, the, at the final meetings of the camp, the coaches said, yeah, you, you have a lot of potential. We'd like to take you to Australia and Brazil. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) So after that, I was like, all right, you got me. (laughs) I didn't think I'd be going to Australia three years after I broke my back and Brazil. Heck Yes heck yes, I'll play for this team. Absolutely. So was this team Canada now? It was team Canada. It wasn't like senior team. So I, they would take me as a development player to play in some tournaments and, right. and things. Yeah.
0: Was there a moment where it started to click for you where you went, okay, I'm good enough now, or I can see myself becoming an actual wheelchair basketball player and good at it?
1: I don't, I don't remember like a a clear light bulb moment, like any athlete, right? Like you're constantly learning and adjusting your game and figuring it out. And all of a sudden you're playing more and more and more. And then all of a sudden you're like, put me in coach. Like you're, you're frustrated that you're not playing. And so, you know, that happens. It it, did, it did take a couple of years. It certainly, uh, it wasn't right away. I do remember feeling very, uh, like trying to make myself super small on the bench in Australia. Cause I was like, don't put me in. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but that went away.
0: <laughs> so what years are we talking here? And, and we heard your, your schooling story, where, where was this all fitting in and together for you?
1: It's kind of overlapping. So this was, it was 2007 that I started traveling with the women's national team. Um, And I had started playing in like 2006-ish. And then it was uh, 2008. I was extremely close to making the senior team Mm -hmm. for Beijing and then didn't. And and that's actually part of the reason I went to law school, Mm -hmm. because I was a little frustrated with that choice and when I'm frustrated, I tend to uh, start doing things. And so they, they didn't put me on that team. And I said, well, I'm going to law school and we're just going to have to figure this out. <laughs> and was, did you retire from basketball at that point? No, um, I did just say, this is now a factor. Like, if you want me on the senior team, sure. But I'm also in law school. So you did both. Yes. I did both. Where
0: did uh, the basketball trail take you after that? You're studying, you're training. How much longer did you play?
1: I played for four years. I played all through law school. And then when I graduated law school, most people immediately go into their articles. I took a year off because the team had actually been very accommodating for me through law school. I could kind of pick and choose what international tournaments I wanted to go to. And I felt like I owed it to them. I said, fine, you get the entire year leading up to London. I will do whatever you say. And, and so I played for, for four solid years on that team.
0: Yeah. I, I think that uh, athlete stories often include a time where you wanted to make a team and you didn't. And yet you chose to stay, you chose to play. It, it obviously spurred you on to say, okay, okay, but I am going to go back to law school. So it changed a little bit what you were, you know, some of your focus and all of that. But uh, that one year then, Big time focus on 2012. Tell us about that year and uh, how that ended up for you.
1: That was an interesting year. That was a really interesting year. I was living in Victoria, BC at that time. And team sport in Canada is a challenging thing because we are a massive country. So there was a player who lived in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, and there was a player in Victoria and there were players spread all in between And so um, the coaching staff said I had to be in a competitive environment, which I completely agree with, which meant I I needed to be playing for a team regularly, which wasn't possible in Victoria. So I had the choice of going to Germany and living in a town there where a bunch of Canadians were playing for some club teams or to the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And for a variety of reasons, I chose to go to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. (laughs) Wow. And so I've spent probably about six months solidly living in there, you know, international tournaments in between and stuff. Um, But yeah, living and training in, in Alabama. And then it was on the road. Like it was like, I feel like it was like 10, 11 months straight on, like away on the road. I was home very, very rarely. And, um, it, it was an interesting, it was a really interesting time because, um, well, I don't know The the American team environment is different from the Canadian team environment. That was something I struggled with a bit and it was hard for me to only have sport. Uh. um, it was, I found myself in a very interesting place of being physically exhausted and not mentally stimulated in any way which was sort of an uncomfortable return to where I felt like after my injury. So like, oh man, I was reading a million books. I tried to teach myself French. I took up the ukulele. I was doing all these things to try to kind of keep my brain going. Um, And, and it was, it was interesting because it showed me that my professional sport career had a limited lifespan. Right. Because to be the best in the world, you can't do anything else. You have to give 110% of your time to your sport. And my brain wasn't happy doing that. Wow. What a mind you have, because you're
0: right. You, you nailed it. I was going to say, but to be the best at sport, you, you know, you hear people, they give up everything else on yeah. purpose yeah. to channel into that. And so, so you did that year in Alabama and uh, what kind of league were you, were you playing in a league or what, what were you playing in?
1: So I was allowed to play and train with the university of Alabama team in the, in like the NCAA, whatever it is. I was not a full fledged member of the team. Cause I wasn't attending the university, right. um, but we were allowed to, but I, every day, every day I played and trained with them. And, and so, so I would sort of be like, I would be on the team against, you know, their team in practice, if you will. Right. that makes sense they had like an international dream team at that time really 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 talented people on that team
0: cool so you you spend that time you do what the coaches say you've dedicated to the basketball and and you you said okay so you knew you weren't going to do this for you know for an extended period of time basketball wasn't going to be it for you um what happened next did you did you end up coming back to the national team and and how did that
1: go So, so you're sort of like a a large portion of the team was also in Alabama. So it wasn't like I was away from the team, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And, and then, yeah, no, we, we, you know, the international tournament started picking up more and more and then um, we centralized, we lived in Winnipeg uh, for the whole summer, I believe all the, the national team together. We all lived at the university of Manitoba, I think in the dorms there. And then we went off to Europe for, gosh, six or eight weeks leading up to, to London and including the London Paralympics. What was that like? That's such an interesting question. People ask me that all the time. It's, it's interesting. We were tired. We were tired heading into those games. I actually, I listened to the episode of my old coach. Um, and when he was talking about London, it was really interesting to hear it from his perspective. Um, we were tired and some things had happened on the team that were not great and that were really challenging. To deal with and so there was like there was a lot of excitement but boy I know I personally I felt held together with like duct tape and bailing time at that point it felt like my body was just I was so exhausted physically oh man mentally I was really tired Mm -hmm. um because of some of the stuff that had gone on you know the interesting thing about team sports I think people often think like you're you know you're all best friends which no my gosh absolutely not you are on a team of 12 players and my the age range on our team I think we spanned 20 years at that point from the youngest to the oldest player people Mm -hmm. in wildly different life stages and then you have the support staff and everybody else some people just don't get along with other people and it doesn't mean that one person is bad or one person is good they just have personality conflicts and you have to live with these people and Mm -hmm. train together and then their conflicts And, and it's sort of this interesting it is, uh, is something, that whole experience, I r- draw on a lot in my professional life now to see how teams work in, in, in the professional mm-hmm. world because I see a lot of the things that I dealt with on the basketball team in my professional life.
0: Wow, wow. You know, everybody,
1: everybody wants to do their best, right? But sometimes people are very tired. People have very different stress responses Oh, that was a hard one. The different, the different stress responses and, and then people's interpretation of those different stress responses. And then that kind of blowing up into huge things. Wow. Um So it was something, I mean, London was amazing and exhausting and great and terrible. All at the same time. <laughs> All at once. And then my husband and I went to France for three weeks after, and I just ate bread and cheese and very much enjoyed that
0: <laughs> and recovered of course you're speaking of bill johnson he was your coach at the yeah. time wasn't he so yeah. check that podcast out you guys check it out because bill tells a great story he has a whole journey of of his own being in charge of all you women and and trying to bring that ship together but i think really i think jessica i think that perspective is so valuable because people hear that if you go to the Olympics or the Paralympics and they think, well, that makes everything okay, right? Oh, but you're at the Olympics. Oh, but you made it to the Paralympics. Doesn't that make it all okay? Because it's all so shiny on TV and it's a dream come true. But the reality is these are real human beings and it's a real team slash family slash personalities that have to come together so you have really segued this perfectly for our conversation in how much you use what you learned on that team in what you do today. And um, when you talk about stress responses, I think perhaps that maybe is the number one culprit in a lot of ways because workplaces become stressful. If workplaces were never stressful, we probably wouldn't have many challenges or problems because we'd all just go on our merry way and do our work. But you bring that all together and and, what do you what do you suggest or what what have you learned about that how to deal with other people how to deal with those responses that are so perhaps different than your own where do you go inside when you're dealing with that with people you work with clients that you're trying to manage and deal with where do you go for that and and in mentally how, how do you deal with that
1: i think education is really important in this piece i think the understanding of different kinds of stress responses is is something that i I think a lot of people they they see a stressful situation and they interpret it how they interpret it and then they think everybody should do it like they do. Right. And I think that is where a lot of the problems happen because we have people that go inside when they're stressed and then we have people that go outside when they're stressed and and then it turns into this like nightmare cat and mouse game. You have the people going in, so in, in turn turning inside and then the people turning outside and they just like chase each other in this like spiral of doom <laughs> until it blows up with one person saying, why won't this person leave me alone? And the other person saying, why won't this person respond to me until there's a huge explosion? So I think being really cognizant always of how. This is going to sound sort of like airy-fairy, but like the vibe, if you will, um, of, of, your, of your workplace. I and mean, like what is happening in your workplace? What is happening in, in your staff's and your team's personal lives? Like none of this stuff can be, can be compartmentalized. And, and the more that you have a team that you enable to show up to anything authentically with their whole selves, the better off you're going to be. And it's way easier said than it's done because frankly, it takes, it takes the leaders to do that. And if the leaders are not showing up authentically, none of the team is going to show up authentically. And then and then you, you, you're already starting from behind the eight ball, if you will. Mm. Like if I know that someone on my team has had a nightmare couple of days because they haven't had any sleep because their hot water tank blew and then the dog got out and then the, this, that, and the other thing, I'm going to back off a little bit on demanding whatever it is I demand in my day as a lawyer. Um, but if I don't know that, you know, I might, I might be sort of like, what? come on, like pull up your socks. What are we doing here? And then they'll think, well, I'm just, you know, I'm not caring and stuff like that. So it's, it's a, I think it all comes down to authenticity and, and how much you can be yourself and how you also have, how much you can have those more challenging conversations, it gets easier. The more you have these conversations. I I said this in the beginning, like it gets easier. It's a skill. Having conversations that are challenging is a skill. And the more you get used to saying things like I'm not at my best today, the easier it becomes. Wow. Bringing yourself to
0: the table authentically strikes me big time. Even if someone else brings less. Ooh, I love this.
1: Yeah. It's exactly. just so it,
0: it almost seems to me like how can we go wrong then? You know, stop trying to not be who we are. Easier said than done though. Ooh. Oh boy. Ooh. Yeah, because you've got to be pretty vulnerable to sort of
1: right? Super vulnerable. How do you stay feeling strong even when you're vulnerable? I don't think you can feel strong when you're feeling vulnerable. Hmm. I actually think that's a an oxymoron. I don't think anyone can feel that way if you're being truly vulnerable because that's sort of the definition of vulnerability right you're you're opening yourself up to the unknown mm-hmm. and the more vulnerable you are in, in terms of your position, the harder it is, right? I mean, I can sort of say this now, but I've you know, i been a lawyer for 10 years. I'm in a very comfortable position in my firm. I know everybody very well, but boy, I remember the first couple of years of practicing as a lawyer, again, dealing with my own pain issues and not knowing anything about what I was doing and basically feeling very anxious um, all the time about a variety of things uh i did not feel strong at all did your confidence
0: build in that you didn't feel strong at all was it the team that gathered around you that has or was it just experience was it just time
1: so interestingly uh i did try to quit being a lawyer i love how you fail at quitting yes Thank goodness. i mean so i uh, i do want to be open about this because i think there's sort of this tendency to think people have it all figured out and they had a smooth path. I did not. Um, I tried to quit being a lawyer at about 18 months in everything. You know, you know what I was doing? I was trying to do it like everybody else. I was not showing up authentically. I was trying to do it exactly like everybody else. And that was doing it like an able-bodied young man would do it, which I am not. (laughs) Um, and it wasn't working for me. I was in a ton of pain. I was really struggling. Uh, My health was deteriorating. So I just told my firm, yeah, I quit. And they were like, Oh, okay. Why? And I was like, no, no, I don't need to say that. I just, I just, no, I'm just like, I'm I'm out. And thankfully they were like, no, no, how about we talk about this? And I was like, I'd really rather not. Um, Again, trying to be like not vulnerable in any way. Then we actually, the the, the female partner like drove to my house at like eight o'clock at night and was like, no, Like, we're gonna talk about this. And, you know, many tears later, I was, you know, (laughs) telling her what my issues were. And she was kind of like, you know, like, I don't know if you know this, but we can all see your wheelchair. (laughs) We know you have a disability. And I was like, no, but like it shouldn't change anything. And she was like, but it's okay if it does. And so, against my will, uh, I did. I, yeah, like my, she had to pull me, kicking and screaming, towards vulnerability. And so I listened to her advice. I said, "Hey, I'm really struggling. I had really like pain issues." Uh, and my firm was very supportive, and they were like, "How about you just like do what works for you?" And and do you want to know? Man, even even with that permission, it was excruciatingly hard because I had spent my whole life achieving and being the best and trying my hardest and oh boy when you start having health conditions that you have to manage that is a challenging thing like who is good at listening to their bodies is any woman good at listening to nobody would have children none of us would have kids if we were good at listening to our bodies so um anyways that's a very long-winded answer of a lot of practice and is not is not something that i am innately good at yeah, it has been something that I've really had to work at and have had a few very formative experiences of people very much forcing me to be vulnerable.
0: Yeah. I love what she said to you. We can see her in a wheelchair. I know. And you saying you don't want it to make make it any different. And she goes, Well, it's okay if it is. Yeah. That speaks to me of we all come to the table with something different. And if people notice that and we celebrate our uniqueness. What's wrong with that?
1: Right. I mean, wow. Wow. I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful that that happened because certainly a lot of things I was able to achieve after my spinal cord injury, I, I was able to achieve because I was ignoring the problems and, and, and the challenges that I had. Right. Uh, but that, you know, you, you can't do that forever. It catches up with you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, we're so glad because it's
0: enabled you to do what you're doing still and you're helping so many people and you're making a difference and you're using all the amazingly unique qualities that you have been, you know, I mean, usually a spinal cord injury isn't a gift, but in some ways you've, you know, now you're, you're in this world where you have a unique ability to relate to certain people Mm -hmm. and to bring that strength to the table. I don't know. That's really cool really cool and i think we're going to get to even more cool stuff with our rapid fire questions okay cool. i think we are let's do it. uh let's get to some cool stories here because i'm going to ask you first to describe a scenario when you had to think on your feet is that okay to ask you that question
1: <laughs> totally. uh i laughed at that uh literally every day every day every day. life with a life with a disability is a thousand problem solving moments that come up at the very last seconds. Um, you know, I've got, I've got a ton of like hilarious examples. I mean, once I had to go to a, another city to do um, an application at a courthouse, and I got to the courthouse and the elevator was broken and I needed to be on the third floor. And so I just immediately found some sheriffs and said, You need to carry me up the third floor. <laughs> and they were like, Okay. So these two sheriffs packed me up the third floor. And, uh, we did it, but, but I mean, like, those are, these are things that happen literally all the time, all the time. And now that I'm a parent, oh my gosh, all the time. There's 10 million ways that I end up in situations that are not accessible. And so it's, it's every day.
0: Where is your happy place? If you have one
1: mucking around in the woods,
0: how do you define success? Jessica?
1: I've been thinking about this question for weeks now. This is an intensely personal question for every single person, but for me, Success is when I am at peace. That makes sense. When makes I sense. am not feeling the need to push and strive and achieve, even, you know, when yeah. I am just perfectly content to be where I am in that moment. Cool. Tell me about a time where you felt underqualified. The first five years of
0: my legal career. <laughs> All the time, in that time. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Tell me about a time where you felt undervalued. I had to think super long and hard about this, uh, because I think I've been pretty lucky. Um, but honestly, not making the team for Beijing was really frustrating for me. And it was validating for me to listen to Bill Johnson's podcast. Cause I thought to myself, I knew it. Because he made a comment about, you know, there were different decisions and certain people probably should have been on that team. And I don't know if he was talking about me, but I choose to believe he was talking about me. <laughs> and you can hold on to that. Yeah. Uh, how do you have conversations with
0: people who have more power than you?
1: This is an interesting question because power, I don't know who has more power than me. You know, I think you have to define what power means because I, don't feel that very often. I mean certainly there's power dynamics, but whether i believe that person is more powerful than me, um honestly, the answer is 99 times out of 100 no. So, um but you know, if you're in a situation or if i'm in a situation where I, you know, i i think somebody's going to have the, the power to make a decision that i don't have, i'm prepared. I'm prepared for whatever they might be saying I, I plan in ahead yeah. and get ready for it.
0: It seems as though mental health is about things you cannot see. When do you see it?
1: Every day. Yeah. Every day in every interaction. It's, it influences every aspect of our daily lives, I think.
0: What, in your opinion, is the biggest change in people post-pandemic?
1: I think certainly in in my world, you know, a lot of professional parents and and you know younger people, um, there's now a flexibility to the world that that there wasn't before, and I think mm, we will be hard pressed to give that up. Hmm. You know, a lot of things happened during the pandemic that we had been told simply weren't possible before, and lo and behold, <laughs> you know, three weeks later with some technology, things are very possible. Um, and so, I think the world certainly for young professional women. I don't think there's ever been a more exciting time to be like a young professional woman. You can work for any company, anywhere now. Um, you can, you can, you can craft your own career and it's not tied to location anymore. Um, I think it's really exciting. I think that's a really big change. People are gotten used to that flexibility and they're not going to give it up. This leads us right into the next question. What do people want from their jobs right now? You know, I I think the flexibility piece is a big one. Um, I think on a deeper level, honestly, people want to be able to be themselves. Hmm. They want to be able to show up and do a good job and go home at the end of the day and feel like they've done a good job for good people.
0: Yeah.
1: Cool. Who
0: are two or three people who influenced you and how did they impact your life?
1: This question is agony for me Uh, because I can't pin it down to two or three. (laughs) There have been so many tiny moments in my life that have been so impactful. And maybe I never see this person again. Um, I'm constantly learning from every single person around me. Um, in, in different ways and in, in, in different forms. Like I'm, I am so lucky to work with some of the coolest people. I learn from them every day and not even just about lawyering. Like I look at how they parent their kids. So I'm like, that's awesome. I want to do that. Um, you know, I live in a city that is full of people who are, you know, making access to the outdoors. Awesome. And I'm like, that's awesome. I want to do that. And, you know, there's so many cool, there's so many cool things going on out there. I I learned from, I learned from everyone. I learned from other parents. I learned from my colleagues. I learned from my kids even sometimes. For sure. You know,
0: it's amazing what they can teach us.
1: Yeah. I can't pin it down. I can't pin it down to to two or three people. (laughs)
0: Don't then, don't pin it down. Don't stop learning from everyone and then passing so much more on to the rest of us. Jessica, I'm, I'm sort of blown away by you. I'm I'm blown away by the fact that in every walk of life, you it was so not perfect. So many times you have said, I wanted to quit that, and then I didn't. <laughs> and then I wanted to quit that, and I didn't. And some people think, you know, when people want to quit, but it's but it wasn't weakness that w- w- made you want to quit. It was just, you, you were done with it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, when I think about all the times that I really, really wanted to walk away from something, every single time it was because I was trying to force myself to do it in a way that wasn't authentic for me. Yeah. And thankfully, thankfully a couple of times I had women mostly step in and say just do it how you need to do it and you'll be fine. And I think that's a message that I don't know isn't isn't heard enough. And again, it's not easy, it's terrifying. Sure, um, but yeah, I was really lucky to have people step in and say just just figure it out for yourself.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think if more people heard that and listened to it and believed it, they would they would be free to do even more things. So today, I'm sure. Well, I'm one, but I'm sure that many are hearing that and are going to walk away from this a little bit different and are going to go into their lives and say, "I'm going to do it the best way. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to allow myself to be exactly who I am." And that's the whole point of this podcast. So, thank you oh, so cool. much for sharing that with us.
1: Thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: Jessica Fliegenhart, incredible strength, perseverance, and insight into what life is like with the added challenges that she has had to face and still does on a daily basis. What a treat this has been. And a huge thank you to Pinnacle for bringing this episode of Mental Health for Performance to us all. Pinnacle, your recruitment firm that has been proudly on the job for the past 20 years. Hey, if you enjoyed today's episode, share it with your friends, subscribe to hear so much more, and check out our website, drtoogood.com. It's there that you can find all of our past guests, along with lots of resource material to help you get even more out of what you hear. I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop. Thanks for listening today. We'll talk to you soon.